Hello, Cachimbonas. I am so excited to be able to unveil the season two lit reviews that I spent so much time reading and analyzing and recording for you all. These episodes are lit reviews that I recorded, as I said, last season, and the patrons got to get first access to these a year ago. And if you listen to this and you're thinking, wow, I wish that I had had access to this year ago, then please, please, please become a patron. It's the most realistic way that I can actually achieve my dream of podcasting full time. You know, the stuff that I'm able to bring you all is super high quality. I spend a lot of time on it, but I will admit that this is not yet the best that Radio Cachimbona can be. There, I believe that there's so much more untapped potential that could come from this project if I was able to devote myself to it full time. And I just want to thank the, the 33 patrons that I have now that are making this possibility a reality. On this lit review, I brought back friend of the podcast, Denise Rebel, a paralegal who's been working in doing detained deportation defense for children for the past few years. And on this lit review, we discussed Roque Dalton's poetry. He was a Salvadorian revolutionary, intellectual, and poet. He he led a very complicated life in that he was the quote-unquote illegitimate son of a Salvadorian nurse and a wealthy American sugar planter. He was raised in a working-class neighborhood by his mom, but at the same time, he attended a day school for the elite. It was a Jesuit-run Externado San Jose, which his father did pay for. He had a lot of, as is seen by this, Roque had a lot of contradictions in his life growing up in a working class neighborhood, being disowned by his father, but at the same time having his education subsidized for him. And this is a really great conversation that Denise and I had. We discussed his revolutionary politics, his anti-dictatorship politics, and the ways in which he put his body on the line and had to live his life in exile in exile of his beloved patria for speaking the truth against the grave wealth and land inequity that exists and continues to exist in El Salvador. And we were just ultimately grateful to be exposed to Central American poets. It was through the lit review and doing research for lit review picks that I came across Rope Dalton and Thank you to my friend Pedro also for <coughs> gifting me this book of poems. Um, actually, I think I think uh, you let me borrow Poemas Clandestinas and I might have just not given it back to you. So <laughs> apologies for that. If you don't have the monetary means to become a patron right now, which I completely understand, there are other really helpful ways to support the podcast. One of them is to leave an Apple podcast review there. It's I'm really, really honored by you all because you've given me a five star rating, <laughs> but I would love it if I would get some new reviews because I the last review I believe is from June 
So if you feel compelled to share why you enjoy this podcast so much, I would really appreciate it if you do so on Apple Podcast Reviews. You can also follow at Radio Gachimpona on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Those mediums are used to start conversation about the episodes that I'm recording. Without further ado, I hope you will enjoy this conversation with Denise Rebel, focused on Roque Dalton's Poemas Clandestinos. to have Denise David of Mass Activist fame here today to do another lit review. And actually, it's pretty exciting because this is the first lit review where we'll be analyzing poetry. We're going to be reading uh, Poemas Clandestinos, which is a collection of Roque Dalton's poems. And he was a Salvadoran poet. He was anti-capitalist and wrote these poems actually under pseudonyms, like a variety of pseudonyms because of how politically charged what he was saying was. So Denise, do you want to say hello to the listeners and share a general reaction to the poems? So thanks for having me, Yvette. I'm happy to be here. What is my general reaction? Very fascinating and very unfortunate that I think we don't know um, more diverse uh, poetry from Central America. I think mm-hmm. this is very just invigorating, just reinvigorating to see um, poet like just the issues that are being talked about through poetry. I, yeah. I think we don't often think about poetry as revolutionary mm-hmm. or how it can be very rebellious mm-hmm. and in action in itself. And I think the poetry was definitely doing a lot of that. Yeah. And he was an activist also just in his own life as well. And Mm -hmm. he had a very dedicated commitment to the belief that art is political, but also like to be a true political artist, you do need to engage in struggle. Mm -hmm. And for him, he defined struggle as active combat. I think that active struggle should be thought of more broadly and so that we can still adhere to this principle that we should be committed as creatives we should also be committed to making our art in use of the movement and Mm -hmm. to make sure that our art is political and that we're also engaging in struggle yeah we we should assure it transcends paper and pen yeah exactly yes exactly perfect perfect way to say it So to start, I wanted to ask about one, so this is related to actually what we were just talking about, about the role of poetry in society. So he wrote that a poet can't smash ideological structures with his poetry sin una confianza, <laughs> sin una confianza invencible y lucida en la clase obrera y sin una participación directa en su combate. And I wanted to ask you if you agreed with that. Which is kind of what we were already talking about. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, I mean, I agree. I think if I were to spend my entire life like in a box, just writing in a room and never leaving <laughs> outside of that and never... So speaking a lot about the systems and how they're failing us and never really engaging in 
addressing them and um, making the system better to work for for everybody, then I don't I wouldn't consider myself a, a true artist at least personally. And I feel like he I think he feels that that like that way as well. Yeah, I think that's what he was arguing that you can't be revolutionary if you're not actually engaged in struggle and i think it's important to point out that a person can enter an activist movement in a lot of ways you know like we actually you know i actually do think it's a little misogynistic to be like oh only those in armed combat are the ones who that's extreme forms of revolution yeah right that's also situational and historical Mm -hmm. it's like very specific to that context but i think you know cooking for people at the community meeting is something that's Mm -hmm. political Caring for children at a meeting regarding that that issue. Yeah. There are so many ways in which you can be involved. Yeah. To me, I just think the distinction is, like, you need to be in community. Mm -hmm. Like, it's just like you said, that you can't isolate yourself and write poetry, write revolutionary poetry that only you read. I think, like, you have to be in conversation with people. Because I also just want to recognize, like, disabled folks and, like, folks who have trouble like be, because we don't make the world accessible to them yeah. might have difficulty navigating definitely that i guess that's just what i wanted to point out mm-hmm. and i do think that that a lot of a lot of things have been incited from like viral videos yeah and there's like there are many ways to to be engaged in movement and revolutionary work yeah without being not necessarily being physically present yeah i do think that at times in living this digital world, Mm -hmm. digital time, Mm -hmm. is that people feel they've done enough by forwarding or posting an article. And I think that is an unfortunate thing that has happened from being so engaged in virtual communication. Forget to to be present, whether it is being, you know, talking to people through forums on the internet Mm -hmm. or maybe going out um, and being involved in something. Mm -hmm. I do think that it's not the internet's fault completely though because because i think it's something about human behavior like have you heard about the bystander effect yeah where like yeah like (laughs) if somebody sees a tragedy unfolding or a crime unfolding like somebody needs help it's a pretty common reaction that passerby will just assume that somebody else is going to call or i was going to call the police but you should not call the police (laughs) you should de-escalate with your community and whoever's around you at the time as long as you're safe, of course. Yeah. I'm just saying, like, I want to get away from this idea that calling the police makes you more safe. Because, right, right I mean, living in Tucson, for yeah. the undocumented community, calling the police could mean interaction with ICE and people. Definitely. So I just wanted to yeah. honor that. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But anyways, okay, so Roque believed that art was life and that a political commitment in its fullest sense was actually a commitment to life. What do you think about that quote? Do you think that art and politics are too different? Like I was saying earlier, I do not, I do believe that, I don't think there's any way that art can exist outside of politics yeah. or that you can create without being political. Mm-hmm. I think that things that we wear, things, um, things, gestures we, that we are involved in or uh, people we talk to are all political acts in mm-hmm. some form or another and mm-hmm. art in, in itself is very similar. Yeah. The way you write, the, the language that you use, whether it's like, colloquial or it's like very professional like i think that you're you're engaged in being political in ways that you might not even understand mm-hmm. and i do think that there's no way in my opinion that they can be separate yeah i also think that like i relate to this as a person who self-identifies as a writer it's like i do firmly believe that like you need to experience the world as much as you can and that 
the more that you do that, the more that you're constantly reflecting on the world around you, the better of a writer you are. Mm-hmm. And so for him, for him to say art is life, to me that means you need to commit to yourself to living a vibrant life if you want to be like a vibrant and interesting writer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, how I think we write from our experiences. Exactly. So if mm-hmm. you're if you never are out in the world talking to people and communicating with different cultures or yeah. different things, just experiencing the world. Yeah. Yeah. How how can you write about it? <laughs> yeah, or what will you write about? Yeah. I wanted to talk about two religions. Mm-hmm. Okay. Which you had pointed out. What struck you about the two religions poem? I think well, I... this was like well I guess we first started talking about this because you said that he was preaching and you said this is an example of it. Well, I, when I said preachy, is I, I meant I guess I, I guess I hate that it was in the context of literally talking about religion. <laughs> yeah. I meant he had he he has a philosophy, mm-hmm. and he is making sure to verbalize it in his poetry. Yeah. So you're saying he was just promoting his he philosophy. Was like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So preachy is maybe not the right term to use in this case. Yeah. But he because he would probably hate that very very much. Yeah. Especially from this poem that you read. But I do think that from this poem, I got that. Yes, you can you can you can follow religion, but just be very careful with the way you follow religion blindly. Mm-hmm. Um, and as well, is that there is another type of religion that you can have, and that's just as important, or even maybe more important, mm-hmm. um, which is um, the fight for social justice or the fight for the the people. Yeah, I really appreciate how he was critiquing the institution of religion. Mm-hmm. Like he wrote, "Fat pastors speak of the end of the world when what's approaching is the end of exploitation." And I think it is really important to recognize that the Catholic Church is an institution, like the from the donations that people give to the Catholic Church, like that is a whole economic powerhouse. And mm-hmm. I like I don't know if people think about that as they worship every week, but it's important to recognize that it plays a role in in the economy. Yeah, I do I do think it's something we often forget when maybe we're practicing religion. At least growing up with like a, a religious upbringing and then coming to my understanding about religion. I do think that we're often told this is happening and you should just embrace it. Even mm-hmm. if it's there's problems happening or it just felt like a lot of like blind belief. So yeah. You just got to be very careful with blind belief. Also engaging in active involvement. And I think it's important to point out the role of the church in Central America. Mm-hmm. Recently, there has been a movement amongst the churches in El Salvador towards neo-Pentecostalism. So it's preachy. So when you said preachy, that's kind. Of, that's the first thing I thought of. That's why I had that negative connotation of preachy. Yeah. Because they're preaching this gospel of prosperity. And it's like a way to actually subtly transmit pro-capitalist values because mm-hmm. they're saying you know we just need to stop thinking with a scarcity mindset we need to think about abundance and we don't hate rich people they're not bad we can all be rich and like if you believe in god like rewards will come to you mm-hmm. and it's a way of keeping people complacent mm-hmm. with the income inequality that exists because they're convinced that like god rewards Good the behavior. rich <laughs> yeah and that as long as they like continue worshiping god then like they will also eventually have their opportunity to become rich and it's very dangerous and it stops people from stops workers from organizing Mm -hmm. so i i wanted to point that out Mm because i think it was really powerful to read the salvadoran poet critiquing the church in that way because it continues to be problematic Mm -hmm. 
I do think there's there's like a theme of 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 like manifest destiny and like be careful really? with that. Or like I think at least I think in the poem where it talks about unbiblical business and it talks about like religion as like production and business. Um, and then he's there's a line that he says, "Step up production of Bibles and all the dialects we we poor speak and ship them to us in the hands of of blonde young men." So it reminded me a lot of the concept of manifest destiny. Um, people are coming to to save us with religion and bar us from like, yeah, uh, or tell us that what we know and what we have, how we lived our lives has been wrong all along, and mm-hmm. showing us the right way to live. Yeah, the Christian Church played a huge central role in colonialism, mm-hmm. and I think this is just the Salvadorian version of that kind of inculcation and forced appreciation and affiliation with the Catholic Church. Yeah. So, actually, I didn't see that... I don't know if I sent you this one because I didn't even read this, but it's page 61, and it's called A Salvadorian Worker Thinks About the Famous Case of San Jose College, and the first line is, the Catholic Church historically is a federal bourgeoisie institution. And I love that he's pointing that out. So, and then he writes, we're in the transition period from capitalism to socialism and the Catholic Church is trying to catch up. Wow. Yeah. So I think it's very important to point out that during the Civil War, the Catholic Church was very much wedded to the elites of the Salvador. I don't know if you know about the level of income inequality that existed among Salvadorians in the 80s. That's what sparked the Civil War is that there were literally around 14 families that controlled the vast majority of the country's wealth. Mm. So it's like, it was, it's comparable to the 1% that's also, that is now occurring globally. Right. But it was occurring... Much more extreme circumstances, though. Yeah, yeah. But still, I mean, people couldn't eat, couldn't, they couldn't live, and that was how the guerrilla would recruit people, is by being like, like, have you thought about how shitty your life is, about how you don't have money, how you can't eat, and, like, mm-hmm. shit, I mean, they were poor, and they were like, well, that's true, actually, like, this is convincing. Yeah. Like, those were the conditions that led to the Civil War. Yeah. That's why I think, do I do think context is everything when it comes to, would you ever be a part of a guerrilla? Like, maybe in the context yeah. of where we live here, mm-hmm. that's a foreign thing. I would never do that. Right, right. But if you're in a circumstances where, like, you, you're just, you have no food and there's there's no options to to, to make money to, to provide basic necessities, would I, in desperation, or even in wanting to mobilize and, and give myself the, the basic rights I deserve, would right. I get into a guerrilla? Probably. Right. I feel like I maybe would. So right. I do think in the right circumstances, you could engage mm-hmm. in, in such a extreme active revolution mm-hmm. yeah i just think that i see a lot of very privileged white americans talking about how people need to immigrate the legal way the right way mm. and they've never been faced with the, these difficult choices that you face when you are living in an impoverished country that where the government doesn't function and the economy is shit and you don't have real options for bettering your life mm-hmm. i don't People don't understand that reality, and that's why I find that so frustrating. Because it's, I don't, I don't think you can comment on what what you would and wouldn't do when you have not had that experience. Like you mm-hmm. actually do not know how you would act. Yeah. You are sitting on your leather couch right now, watching Fox News, thinking that, mm-hmm. but you haven't actually been put in that situation. Yeah. So I don't take your opinion seriously. Mm-hmm.
So I wanted to talk, the next one I wanted to talk about was Sobre Nuestra Moral Poetica. And in this poem he says, No somos pues cómodos e impunes anonimistas. De cara estamos contra el enemigo y cabalgamos muy cerca de él en la misma pista. So, and then he says, Sistema y a los hombres que atacamos desde nuestra poesía, Con nuestra vida les damos la oportunidad de que se cobren día tras día. I really do admire how it really was such a weak government that there was impunity for killing people who were anti-capitalist, people who were bringing messages like he was. And I really admire that he wrote anti-capitalist poetry anyway. And I appreciate that he's pointing out that he's not comfortable with anonymity, but he is facing this reality of the possibility of state-sanctioned violence. Mm. <clears throat> and I found that really inspiring. And, and I think I noting with all respect that there's a lot of historical differences between what he was experiencing and what you and I experience here. But mm-hmm. I still found this question relatable because we, we also confront violence living in Tucson as Latina women. So there's border vigilantes that, mm-hmm. well, you and I have U.S. citizen privilege, but yeah. we live in a community where our fellow community members are unsafe because there's border vigilantes who are trying to kidnap and assault migrants that mm-hmm. are trying to come here for a better life. And just recently there was a black student who was assaulted at the U of A and the university didn't really put out any kind of statement protecting the student you know and then there's just also the constant ice border patrol police presence and so i wanted to ask you what motivates you to continue doing political work in this climate and specifically political writing i mean I, i've always thought like, writing is at least i write fiction so i think you can use fiction as a way to tell the truth mm-hmm. and i do think it can be a very revolutionary thing to to speak your truth mm-hmm. through story and through through like your just creating this your own reality mm-hmm. um, and, and in doing so like speaking to other people who can relate to those experiences that mm-hmm. you've created in, a, in a pages so I do think it's like its own revolutionary act yeah. a way to sometimes like when you feel hopeless and you feel like you can't do much mm-hmm. like writing can be a form of combating those issues mm-hmm. um, in your community which is why I can see how he'd have to write in pseudonames because he was living in extreme yeah. circumstances where speaking these things is in its own way, a very, very, very revolutionary act for him. Um, yeah, it's putting your physical body on the line. Yeah, like he's something could... you might not associate with a poet publishing, but he was in that in that in that climate. Yeah, he, that he was putting his body on the line. And so I do think that writing is a very revolutionary act, and I think in his poetry it does. There's a sense of poetry will will live beyond me, mm-hmm. and I do think that writing has that power. If mm-hmm. if, uh, if you really engage in really in like, like like it or like yeah. to write yeah i mean i think his poetry for sure lived on past him you know mm-hmm. like the reason that this anthology even exists is because there are people who were inspired and felt the need to translate it into english because they felt like these poems needed a wider readership mm-hmm. and and here we are talking about his poems on the lit review yeah <laughs> and it is very relatable i do think it can be it can very be very much be applied to the united states yeah but i but i do think it's important to appreciate and acknowledge that 
the, I think the circumstances were far more extreme for yeah, for him definitely. and what he was going through. Yeah. That, and that what he was doing it was so incredible, in so many ways, much, very courageous and brave. Mm-hmm. And I mean, was exiled for a point and still yeah. continue the work. Somebody might be like, I'm done. Like, I've been exiled yeah. from the place I want to change and improve. <laughs> right. How can I engage in my community? Call it a day. <laughs> yeah, like that's it. Like, I'm no longer, I've been exiled from my community, the, the place I want to improve. And, it's, and it feels like it's over, but he kept doing work. Yeah. And spreading his, his philosophy everywhere and mm-hmm. returned even so. I like, so I'm also really happy to learn about these like Latin American intellectual spaces where when he was in Mexico City, he was around a community of artists, mm-hmm. it seems. And like, I would always romanticize the American writers in Paris, like Hemingway and the Fitzgeralds, mm-hmm. that apparently, the, and like Gertrude Stein were apparently all part of this Parisian intellectual group. And I thought it was really cool that Roque, <laughs> Roque Dalton was a part of yeah. a Latin American intellectual space like that. And yeah. you're right, he did continue his work after, like, even being in exile. Oh, when we were talking about like art and politics, the person who wrote the intro to the anthology was saying that it was Roque that taught him that art is political, and also that to be political, to be a political artist, it me- like that means that you're just committing yourself to living life. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really dope that his teachings like weren't just in the settlement, but they followed him wherever he had to go in his life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a place you can be most honest and free. I've always thought of writing like that. Mm. I like that. You know, there's there's no lines or confines to what you write. You can yeah. you can say anything, truly. Mm-hmm. I mean, it depends on if you want to share it or not. But yeah, it can be when you're you can feel most liberated in writing if if you really you really take it in the way you should. Mm-hmm. You know. So the poem that I was just talking about is in the section all or poems of love. Mm-hmm. How do you think writing radical poetry is a demonstration of love? How do I think poetry is a radical demonstration of love? Depending on who reads it. I mean, I think he's very direct, though, in most of his poetry. So you can kind of get a sense. For the most part. There's some ones where I'm like, I'm not sure if I can grasp what he's saying. No, I was going to say, we we had spent time discussing it, because I think what he talks about is complex. But I think his style is very direct. Yeah. Yeah, but... Well, going back to the original question, what was your favorite? How do you think writing radical poetry is a demonstration of love? I, I feel like a lot of times, I've, I've, I at least I felt in his po- poems, he was addressing like poetry as his own healing in some ways. Mm. At least I think it was. I mm. think there were, there were some poems especially where I was like, are you talking about... Are you talking about actual poetry? I felt like he was talking about actual poetry and what it's done for him. Mm-hmm. Po- poetry is an act of self-care, mm-hmm. which I, I do think is very true. Mm-hmm. I do think that poetry in an, in an essence could be a form of loving yourself because you're expressing yourself. Mm-hmm. Where do you think he talked about that? Not just for him, but also for society. Mm-hmm. The flower of his poems always looks for the air and the sunlight of tenderness. I think that can be applied anywhere that his poems are being read. Definitely. Oh, so I wanted to ask about the poem on page 11, which is on the profit margin or the boss robs every worker twice over. So it's titled on the profit margin or the boss robs every worker twice over. 
The woman's domestic functions create time for the man for necessary for socially necessary work that he doesn't get fully paid for. The capitalist himself robs him of the better part of his value, just enough to live on and be able to continue working. Pay with which the man returns home and mutters to his woman, Oh, well, see what you can do to manage to have enough to cover all the expenses of domestic function. What was your reaction to this poem? I immediately thought paradox and then capitalism, of course. Mm-hmm. I think those are the two things I thought about. And then I thought about sexism and gender roles, I think, as well. I think those yeah. were all like the, the themes I saw in here mm-hmm. amidst this poem. I really appreciated how he kind of spells out how people who like stay at home moms or wives who stay at home or women who stay at home are produ- are producing and they're laboring mm-hmm. but they're just not paid for it mm-hmm. and i think that that's really important to point out because capitalism is based on exploiting people mm-hmm. like capitalism is you as the boss hiring workers and gleaning profit from their labor and I think it's, and I think oftentimes we miss the importance of the labor that women do, including like emotional labor. Definitely. That is required in order to make, in order to allow the man to engage in quote unquote socially necessary work. Mm-hmm. And I also, I like that phrasing as well because I think it emphasize it, like you said, emphasizes the sexism in our society where women's work is not valued even though it is work men's work is considered quote-unquote socially necessary mm-hmm. but like women's emotional labor their child rearing is just considered an expectation yeah and it's not equated to a value at least at least i think here he is yeah but he's pointing out that, that there it, is a value there is a value exactly. but generally outside of this he there is it is not perceived as such yeah and I just really appreciate the poem for bringing that to light. Mm-hmm. It did seem like for me, like the poem went full circle too, like the woman's domestic yeah. functions, mm-hmm. and then to cover all the expensive of domestic functions. Yeah, I well, I thought that's what was brilliant about it is yeah. that he's he is showing the interconnectedness between those two things, and it's necessary to do that if you're going to have an accurate capitalist analysis, anti-capitalist analysis. And I do think he's he's also talking about the fact that being a full-time organizer doesn't normally pay. The revolution oh yeah it doesn't pay it doesn't pay being an, an organizer being an activist doesn't doesn't provide compensation um and there and it's i think it's interesting when you are involved in a movement there's always there's a lot of expectation to provide a lot of free labor as well yeah and there's the a lot of connotations of, but you're doing it for the greater good mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so you're gonna ha- you're gonna go to well, five meetings industrial complex too right in, in its own essence, definitely. <laughs> but it's more volunteer-based. I don't even... Sometimes I don't have a quali- qualification of non-profit, or at least in the, yeah, the mm-hmm, system. So mm-hmm, you're just volunteering mm-hmm. all of the time and have are expected to provide free labor just mm-hmm. for the sake of the greater good. And then you end up going into like martyr complexes, I feel like, a lot of times in movement yeah. work. Mm-hmm. So I think he is talking about that as well. I don't know if intentionally, um, but it, it does feel like it's coming through too mm-hmm. amongst capitalism and important domestic work see to me he's describing people who don't have time to be politicized because where do you get that they're political socially necessary work see but that i think he's like being kind of sarcastic because i think think, yeah because i think what you're saying is that activism anti-capitalist activism is 
something that like a capitalist would consider the opposite of socially necessary. Right. So, like, I think he's kind of being tongue-in-cheek, like, oh, you know, capitalism might tell you that this factory job that you're going to is quote-unquote socially necessary, but actually it's not. Like, we could have an alternative economic structure. Yeah. That's how I read that. No, that makes sense, too. I can see. I think it it also aligns more with the title, too. Oh, so I wanted to ask you what you thought the title meant. It's on the profit margin or the boss robs every worker twice over. I mean, I, I just I figured it was like a metaphor for the exasperation of capitalism. Like it, it doesn't, it's not, it doesn't feel like it, but, or you don't think it's happening, but you're being exploited constantly mm-hmm. um, by having to work in this like hamster wheel kind of process mm-hmm. where like you're, you never really have a time for break and you never actually catch up. You're just constantly just trying to to pay the ends meet and pay the basics and like never really kind of going above water. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think it's on the profit margin or <laughs> on the profit margin or the boss robs every worker twice over because I think these phrases that people who are pro capitalists use, the profit margin. It hides what's actually happening it's like oh in order to get a profit margin you have to exploit your workers Mm -hmm. but through using this business jargon you can hide that and make capitalism seem not that bad Mm -hmm. and then i I appreciate that it's like or actually you can also just say the boss robs every worker twice over and i understood the twice over as being about so i'm so i'm kind of putting myself in his from his perspective where he was living in like the 1960s where I think he's just assuming that jobs are very gendered in society and I think that he's he's also assuming kind of like a middle class man goes to work and woman stays at home Mm -hmm. and I think from that he's he's claiming that the man that's being exploited by his boss isn't the only person being exploited that man's wife who stays at home and fulfills the domestic functions is also being robbed because it's her labor that makes the man's labor able to happen yeah Yeah. wow yeah i didn't think about it like that i I think that's a that's a very way to good perspective i didn't think about Okay, so then I also wanted to read the poem on page 13 that said Poema de Amor. So I'm just going to read it aloud. I'll read it in Spanish. Tercer Poema de Amor. A quienes te digan que nuestro amor es extraordinario porque ha nacido de circunstancias extraordinarias, diles que precisamente luchamos para que un amor como el nuestro, amor entre compañeros de combate, Llegue a ser en El Salvador, amor más común y corriente, casi el único. What were your reactions to this poem? I I feel like I sat on this one for a while, trying okay. to analyze and figure out what he was talking about. And at first I was like, okay, he's discussing equality, okay? And then I was thinking, he's talking about working to mobilize people to fight for injustice, like fueling the flame to fight, and that making that a normalcy in, yeah. in a, such an oppressive country, mm-hmm. or struggling to give strength to others who don't have a voice to fight injustice. I guess I was like trying to figure out who he meant by comrade, mm-hmm. and I realized Yeah, I was, was kind of wondering, I was thinking, is, is there a queer subtext here? 
Maybe. <laughs> because, At first I thought it could be that. Because it's compañeros, he says, de combate. So it's like, <laughs> it, maybe. Yeah, I mean, it definitely could be. I guess from, from reading his poems of it being so gendered and he, he, seems, he seems like very heteronormative. Yeah, he is very I So I just figured like that wasn't where he was what he was going for, given the other poems I've read of him. Yeah. But hey, you never know. Maybe like it could be a, a, well, something yeah. under, underlying. But I do think yeah. he's speaking about the man and women who... Who are so who are so busy living the life of mm-hmm. of capitalism and not engaging in the social issues that he wishes he could pull in that he probably this couple seems like they're the opposite. It this seems couple? like they're like or this this couple or this friend this little friendship <laughs> is a love among comrades in combat. But I feel like he wants to replicate that am- amongst all of his fellow Salvadorians. I guess when he says a love among comrades in combat, I understand. So I think first, it's important to acknowledge that romantic love isn't the only kind of love to exist. So you're right. We don't know if this is romantic or not. But when he says a love among comrades and then making that the most ordinary and common love is... I understood that. Because I'm thinking... To me that you have... Oh, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, maybe I'm thinking... I I was thinking like he was talking about the camaraderie that was formed within his fellow organizers and his fe- fellow guerristas. So like in how there was a bond formed amidst fighting for, for social justice of a very other impoverished communities. So I thought he was speaking about that and how he, wish, he wished that could become a normalcy and common amidst all the people. That they'd all be fueled by that same energy mm-hmm. and they'd all want to get involved and have that same exact love for guerrilla and injustice. Like, that's what I thought he might be talking about. But again, I'm not really sure about this poem. <laughs> this is actually, one that got me stumped. <laughs> yeah, I, actually, I, that reading makes a lot of sense to me. I think for some reason I just assumed that this was a romantic poem, but you're right to point out that his other stuff is heteronormative, and I wouldn't think that this would be any different. Mm-hmm. And he says compañeros de combate. Mm-hmm. And so I think that... He is talking about, and because that is a really powerful love, like to love someone so much that you're willing to engage in armed struggle with them, that you're willing to fight for your beliefs, put your body on the line. I think that Mm -hmm. that is a very special kind of love. Yeah, but it was a, like one that could be interpreted in many ways, I feel like, particularly this poem. Yeah, I mean, every poem can be interpreted in so many ways, you know, that's why I love this and I think I used to be intimidated by poetry but poetry is very intimidating yeah well I think yeah because I think it's I don't know I think like growing up my schools didn't teach me about like Latina poets so it just felt very foreign for that reason Mm -hmm. I know when my because I was so I graduated as a creative writing major and some of the basic requirements for creative writing are like English literature Mm -hmm. and there was a class regarding all English literature, and it was all basically European literature. Yeah. And there was one book that was about 12 years a slave. And he was, and at one point the professor was like, we don't have time to read a book. And he removed (gasps) that book. Oh my God. And I was like, the only book about people of color. I was like- You can't make this up. I was just, damn, all right then. Like I was looking forward to that book. I was like, I'm tired of this white bullshit. I was like, let's go to something that I feel like, I just like, I need some diversity here. Like this is terrible. Yeah. Yeah, I just, it was very unfortunate. I think there was so much he could do with that class and he, it just was a disservice. 
I kind of experienced a similar thing at Yale. So I started off as an English major because 18-year-old Yvette really wanted to be a writer, TM, wanted to be paid for my writing. The English major, there were two tracks, like you could kind of focus on literary analysis or there was also like a creative writing track. Mm-hmm. But to get to that point where you could pick a track, you had to take all the prereqs, the prerequisites. Yeah. And Same here. it was just like you said, it was like literally, I took a class on mid, like medieval English. I had to take that class, it was horrible. It was so horrible. I had to recite a Chaucer poem. Why? That's it was yeah. literally a different language. No, it is. Oh, it's old English. It's yeah. it's it's a for literally another language you have to somehow yes. interpret. I pretty much that class was like, how can you MacGyver the most BS possible? How can you <laughs> <laughs> and like get away with it being insightful? And just, like, toots their, their beautiful horns of how great this English literature is. I know. I remember, like, being super irritated and talking hell shit, like, about other people in the class. Being like, oh, my God, they're obviously just bullshitting. What are they talking about? It's true. It's but just... honestly, three years later, I was that person bullshitting. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever you got to do to survive, you know? Well, that's why I say yellow education gives you the ability to bullshit. Yeah. Convincingly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Okay, so I wanted to talk about media, the role that it plays in capitalism. In one of his poems, Dalton writes, In capitalist logic, freedom of the press is simply another business, and its value to each is in proportion to what one pays for it. What are your thoughts on capitalist media and their coverage of the 2016 election, their current coverage of the 2020 election? I do think it was very one-sided and mixed messaging. I mean, think with media in general. Like, you never know what you're getting in it and it where it's coming from and who's influencing the media that's being produced that's interesting because i i actually disagree that it was one-sided i think that the issue was that they the there's this idea of objectivity that the news media is supposed to abide by and yeah. so i feel like they would talk about hillary clinton and then they would also talk about donald trump and they would equate the two as if they were worth comparing yeah. I mean because the, the fact that that was the that was the race and that Hillary Clinton lost is actually absurd like I definitely did not vote for Hillary in the primaries I'm not a Hillary Clinton person believe me <laughs> I'm not but just objectively <laughs> okay, I'm not going to use objectively while I'm critiquing objectivity but, <laughs> but I think most people can agree that she had more relevant qualifications than he did definitely yeah of course i I think that can i don't know how that could be argued otherwise i just yeah so right and so i think like that was the fault of the news media was that they presented the two as if they could be compared on the same field right like this is what the democrats say this is what the republicans say when it should have been like this is what the Democrats say, and wow, the Republicans are in this downward, racist, wild spiral. Yeah. And they didn't cover it that way. They were just like, Donald Trump said that all Mexicans are rapists. Acting like that was objective when it wasn't, yeah. I think that they the issue with the media in 2016 was that they normalized Donald Trump mm-hmm. by covering him so much. Because, also, so the New York Times polling on the day of the election was off that for most of the day they predicted that hillary clinton was going to win and their prediction was 70 to 30 percent hillary clinton was going to win and i think that that reflects the mindset of this liberal elite media like yes these people might vote democrat but they're not leftists Mm -hmm. they're moderates yeah i don't know what do you think 
No, I I completely agree. I think you're completely right with all you were saying. I I guess I was more thinking about it being one-sided in that I don't think that equal respect was given, especially given she was a woman. I do think there were I think one-sided being that that the, that it was wasn't giving the absurdity that it was like, like the it was, side was, was like absurd misogynistic. Yeah, thing. it was like, very yeah. in the in the things that she had to deal with as a woman to that of a man who was running for presidency or trying to to be elected as president. I think that's where it was one sided in my opinion. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I would agree that the objectivity though of them trying to be objective in doing so was almost by com- complicitly okay with a lot of the terrible things that Trump was saying in advocating for and that's a, an enormous issue i think that a lot of media toys with mm-hmm. i don't know how you would address that in media though yeah i mean i think i don't know what is exactly taught in journalism schools but i just know that a lot of people i'm acquainted with and what i've heard journalists say publicly is that they do believe in this idea of objectivity. Mm-hmm. Like, that's kind of the issue, too. It's the people in these newsrooms, even in the quote-unquote liberal ones, are generally very privileged, grew up wealthy, probably white, and went to, like, Ivy Leagues or went to top-tier institutions. Like, that's the reality of what the New York Times is, what, like, all these places are. Mm-hmm. And I think that they... They just lack a very critical perspective because they, they thought that Donald Trump winning was laughable. And that's because they don't understand what's happening in places like Arizona. They don't understand what's happening Impact. in places like Idaho. They're not, they don't know what people are concerned about. Like, yeah. the, like the critique of the elite liberal coastal, like the elite coastal liberals, I think is an accurate one. And actually, I need to call myself out because... <laughs> because because yeah because i am actually a part of that group and that's really problematic and yeah i think a lot of the corporate media is really unaware of what happens in places that aren't like new york la san francisco Mm -hmm. if there's a i think at least from the the feeling of what of, of the aftermath of the election i think was immense sadness and despair like hopelessness because mm-hmm. I worked at a school I was working at a school as a college advisor at the time and it was like mm-hmm. like everyone in the school was like it just there's like a feeling of like just being depressed tension, um, tension and how this is going to impact our community mm-hmm. in immense fear because we realize like this means more detainment more more impact on our community of color yeah, how I'm are sure we, students how are, are worried about if they could qualify for scholarships or yeah. what was going to happen Basically, any group that was a minority was, I feel like, like oh, shit. oh shit, you know, like, I don't, I feel like everyone was, I think, very scared. Um, and we, I mean, we still are. I mean, we're still like, oh my god, I can't believe he's still there. Like, yeah. what's going on? Right. But I do think that it's very easy to, to become very displaced from social issues when mm-hmm. you've moved up so much in within social mobility. Yeah. When you've gone up and you are working in a fancy, bougie corporate office, I don't know, or... You're working in a fancy newspaper or who knows whatever kind of job you're in and you're making good money now and you're doing well for yourself and you forget these these larger actions that have been made like this election happening has had terrible impact on communities mm-hmm. and it's happening right now and it's extremely detrimental for 
years to come mm-hmm. like this isn't just gonna it's not gonna affect us for this four-year term or oh god forbid no don't say it don't say it Def- <laughs> definitely don't let it please no just sage the room yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> i just think it i think people think it's just gonna be this moment in time where it's gonna impact us four years it's gonna it's gonna follow us for a long time and it's already affected people in ways that's gonna impact them for their entire lives especially i'm thinking of like family separations that trauma that kids have experienced in family that's gonna last forever that's, yeah that's not just it happened we'll get a new president it's all gonna be okay no that's just gonna last forever it stays with you yeah i don't think people think about those things when we think i think when you're in in such when you're so far displaced from those issues you forget the long-term effects yeah i agree and you know i also think about and i've talked about this before on the podcast like with nicaraguans Mm -hmm. and their political crisis that's a whole generation of young Nicaraguans who have been targeted by this government and just ruthlessly and arbitrarily and I think we don't think about that we don't think about what is the effect going to be on Nicaraguenses as a whole as a whole generation that experienced really terrible political repression Mm -hmm. how are we going to deal with the PTSD that's going to come from that Mm -hmm. yeah I think media plays a huge role in in the way that elections turn out and I really hope that the elite, I mean, yeah, my hope is that at least somebody, no, actually, I was going to I was gonna pl- say, hopefully the elite corporate media gets better, but that's silly. That's not going to happen. So actually what's important is to continue to listen to and support independent media. Mm-hmm. So if you want to support Radio Cachimbona, you can go to patreon.com slash Radio Cachimbona to support your local independent media person. No, but really, I mean, I think it's important to have these takes because... I'm not going to rely on the New York Times to get the, the hot take right. Yeah. Like, they've just fucked up so much recently. I've just... I used to respect that publication because I was silly. And now I'm just like, no. Mm-hmm. And, like, Rocky would also not want you to. No, yeah. He'd, he'd be like, hello. <laughs> it's like, especially in uh, Salvador, like, you don't trust the media. Yeah. Like, they're, it's run by the wealthy and the, and the few. And he would tell you, what are you... No. Yeah, like, stop. <laughs> Don't do it. I'd like to think we're in a different circumstance. We're not as extreme, but we have equally as much work to do within our own media. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Of course, it's going to be contextually different, but there's a lot of similarities. Actually. Yeah. yeah, just on a wider scale. Yeah. Um, I think I do appreciate that news has started to cover the election because, like, the, the Democrats are just such a clusterfuck that... I actually do want to be thinking about this this far ahead because I think it actually is going to be like a really difficult choice. And Mm -hmm. I appreciate that about this time around, even though it's going to feel like we've been in like election season for like two years. It definitely feels like that. Yeah, I know. It's starting so early and I feel like the stress of what could happen is just come, it's starting much earlier. Yeah, I know. I agree. And which is the downside. But the anxiety of yeah. what could happen is, is going to follow us right up until the election. I, I know. You yeah, know? I know. It's like I will be relieved just to know what's going to happen so that I won't be in this state of anxiety. Like, what's going to happen? <laughs> I wanted to talk about the cops and the guards poem. Very heavy. Yeah. So I really appreciated this analysis and I felt like it was an abolitionist analysis Hmm. where 
Oh, I feel like that's a good way to look at it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, where he talks about the guards, and he's talking about guards and cops, that's the title of the poem, and he says, They too were once people, but with the excuse of hunger and unemployment, they accepted a weapon, a club, and a monthly salary to defend the makers of hunger and unemployment. So the reason why I think this is an abolitionist analysis is that one of the really central parts of abolitionist analysis is the understanding that in the US, the police as we know it grew out of slave patrols. And that the idea behind police is protection of property. And enslaved people were considered property and it's a perfectly logical connection to think that that's where police grew out of slave patrols and so I, I appreciate that he defines cops and guards as being the defenders of the makers of hunger and unemployment mm-hmm. because that is true I mean even if you think about how the police enforce or how they react to homelessness now what do they do they clear out encampments incarcerate people and who are they who are they doing that for in san francisco i know that they would do that near the bart stations because the techies in their suits didn't want to see the homeless people and so every once in a while the police would come around and do sweeps of, mm-hmm. of the homeless encampment near yeah. the bart and i think that growing up we're told that the police are protectors and we're not told who's included in the hour and we're not told that it's the wealthy that's included in that Mm-hmm. our protectors damn yeah I didn't think of it like in that sense all the way to the homeless but yeah <laughs> you went down this rabbit hole with this <laughs> well cause I wanted to think like what's a concrete way that police were born out of slave patrols what's a modern day example of how police are protectors of property instead yeah. of protectors of human rights oh definitely but I think there, there's I mean there's so many like the da- the Dapple pipeline for example mm-hmm. the police who assaulted activists who were trying to stop the Dapol pipeline from being built. Mm-hmm. They were protecting the oil companies and their profit over the folks' First Amendment rights. Mm-hmm. Right? No, that's true. Very true. Who are they protecting in that instance? They're protecting the oil company. I think that is a good way to look at loyalty, to figure out loyalty, because I do think, like, we do perceive police as their lo- their t- whole thing is like serve and protect, but like who are they serving and who exactly. are they protecting? Mm-hmm. And I think oftentimes we fear police rather than feel safe by police. I think people of color are afraid of police. Right. I think white people feel safer when there's police around. Right, right. right. Uh, I think that's a good, that's that's definitely a very good point to make. But yeah, I don't. I I think we we don't often think about how police often do protect certain people's safety or certain people's property or. Or who they really are serving. Yeah. I mean, because we're told, like, growing up, that the police are there to protect us. Mm-hmm. And then I, I just appreciate being in the Bay and having learned from really cool abolitionist organizations like Critical Resistance. And then really actually being able to take note of, like, what does the police do? Mm-hmm. And, like, I remember at Stanford, Stanford undergrad college Republicans invited this hateful person what was his name it was like it wasn't Richard Spencer maybe it was it was something Spencer and he was an Islamophobe that was whose speeches and whose beliefs were so hateful that he has been banned from England 
Okay, wow. England's not this left, this leftist haven, right? It's like right. Also, an imperialist power, and the UK was like, "Uh, you're banned because of how hateful you are." The Stanford College Republicans invited this man to come speak, and the Santa Clara police were there to make sure that there was no counter protest to try and shut the event down. Yeah. Be aware, folks. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you, so because he says in the cops and the guards poem. He writes, they always saw the people as a mass of bats running away. They too were once people, but with the excuse of hunger and unemployment, they accepted a weapon, a club, and a monthly salary to defend the makers of hunger and unemployment. What do you think he's saying about the guards and cops level of complicity in income inequality or wealth inequality? I do think he has a more of like a fuck you kind of attitude i don't i don't i think that there i think in the united states there's more of a, especially with like border patrol there's more of a need to understand maybe give people a chance or at least like they're in some in some in who's, some spaces who's saying that to me i mean like there's like a, a thought process of like trying to understand why people go into border patrol like humanizing who's in border patrol oh yeah yeah, yeah. but Same i with like the private the guards in detention centers in exactly. private yeah exactly or even who goes into be, becoming a police like what their intentions are, and then what actually comes out of being a police officer. Mm -hmm. So I think we're socially made to feel like we need to humanize these people, but then also we don't, we're not almost like we're not allowed to then press judgment because these are hard jobs and choosing to do this job isn't easy. And so we're really not, not pose criticism, even though I think Definitely we should. And in this case, I think he's more of, I'm not, I'm not even in the mindset of understanding. Right. I'm more in the mindset of, fuck them, like they're ruining, they're ruining our communities and, mm-hmm. and they're just reaffirming a lot of social issues. I just appreciate this because I'm so fucking over neutrality, especially mm-hmm. people trying to be neutral in 2019. No, you can, in times of extreme oppression, you cannot be neutral. Mm-hmm. And I think that he does a really good job of pointing out that it is, it is a choice, and I, I just, I'm careful with this because I have economic privilege, I have college degrees and a law degree that makes it, that, so that it's pretty easy for me to get a job that helps me survive. So I'm cautious of that, but I think, I, I think he's saying that it's a choice to have those jobs, and I... I follow Chikanisma and she talks about how she's worked minimum wage jobs and she lives in El Paso and she also could join Border Patrol and she doesn't. And it's wrong to talk about this as gun against your up against your head coercion because mm-hmm. it's not really that. And I I appreciate that he frames it as them leaving community. Mm-hmm. And we were, tra- we were trying to find like a good example of where translation was kind of off or where I thought, oh, there's things can mean different things mm-hmm. in different languages. In English, he says, they too were once people, but with the excuse of hunger and unemployment, they accepted a weapon, a club, and a monthly salary to defend the makers of hunger and unemployment. And in Spanish, he wrote, un día ellos también fueron pueblo, pero con la excusa del hambre y del desempleo aceptaron un arma un garote y un sueldo mensual para defender a los sembrados y a los desempleadores. And then he, like, he frames it as, they once were pueblo. Like, they mm-hmm. once were community, and they turned their back on us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like how he phrases that. There is definitely more, I think, more more cemented in pueblo than, than people. Maybe, I guess, like, it's not. Maybe it's a little bit separate. 
connotations. People in Pueblo. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Like, yeah, that's that's why I thought it was a good example of how like translation can be so difficult because, like, I think you know it's probably it's hard to think of another word apart from people. Yeah. But it doesn't communicate the, the same the same message of community. Yeah. Definitely. Actually, I might have. I I, I might have translated this as they two were once community. Mm. Because it does it does feel like more intimate. And I do think Pueblo is more intimate than people. Mm-hmm. I think people can be like very people can be strangers. Yeah, like intimate implied. and and that it's a small place. Everybody mm-hmm. knows each other. I do think that you brought up a good point that there there's a lot of there's a lot of power power that's displaced and pushed onto like blaming the lar- the larger system for the choices you've made. Mm-hmm. And I think choosing to become a war patrol agent or choosing to become part of the police force protecting oppressive government, I think there is choice. And I do I do think we often do remove, cho- remove choice. And we say, they had no choice. They had to do this job. There was nothing else. Nothing else they could do. And I think in doing so, then we just continue the, the system flowing and working as it should, as it should. And we never, I think we never create the blockade of like, no, you you made a choice and that's something you're going to have to, to live with and, and you may have to face consequences of not being a part or considered part of community. I agree with that. And I also think that, <clears throat> I think what I've been thinking a lot about the banality of evil and how that idea that evil doesn't always look like hanging somebody or the guillotine or like these explicit forms of violence. The Nazis who pushed paperwork were also complicit in the Holocaust and what, mm-hmm. what occurred. And so I also think about the Border Patrol as I think we should think of them in a similar way. They, everyone who thinks it's so awful that families were separated, everybody that thinks of that as inconceivable, should recognize that it was U.S., that it was these border patrol people that carried out that order mm-hmm. and you're outraged and you're saying you can't even imagine it well they have both imagined it and actually executed it mm-hmm. and what does that mean about their role in our community yeah <laughs> yeah i i'm with you i completely agree i i think that we're we're raising a society where we're supposed to be grateful that people have decided to go into these roles of security or enforcement and we're we're often kind of trying to dis dissuay us from pushing back in any way or format. And I think that, that makes it so those systems do do more malicious and terrible things because we're not holding them accountable. And I think that po- posting a video about how horrible it is, that the act is terrible but not the people mm-hmm. following these orders is terrible. I think it's something that a light has not been shined on as much. Mm-hmm. Like people in our communities, people who look like us, have enforced these these laws, and that's I think that's far more terrible to me than somebody who's not con- than someone who's not connected to the community. Yeah, it's fucking awful to normalize separating babies from their mothers. <laughs> Trash. Okay. It's quite a note. It's quite a note to to finish off there. <laughs> Well, there was one more thing I wanted to ask. So he wrote in that poem, El hecho es que los policías y los guardias siempre vieron al pueblo de allá para acá y siempre las balas solo caminaban de allá para acá. What is your reaction to that? I mean, well, I I was looking at it from a very, like, bird's eye view. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So I, it, it felt very like, to me, like he was talking more about how people are fighting amongst each other. And it's a very divide and conquer kind of um, thing that's done throughout movements. So I thought he meant more like, if they only knew they were fighting amongst themselves and they were doing the work for us to uh, to kind of finish each other off in a sense, even though they're they're both dealing with the same issues. But I think after talking about this, I realized I think um, it's more it's more addressing that like more of the the small mechanics of what's happening within the community. Um, but I think that what you brought up earlier was when you, I think when we were not recording, um, I I think it makes a lot more sense in this, in this section. Mm. Okay. Yeah. I'm like, I'm trying to read your analysis too about the fact is that the cops and the guards always saw the people from there to here and the bullets only traveled from there to here. I mean, I think what you're saying is true. I just think that he's. Like, you broadened it to be about not just cops and guards, and I think that this is specifically about cops mm-hmm. and guards. Yeah, and I, and I agree. I think he's more talking about these two entities and how they, they're they working within, yeah. within the confines of community. Because I think he writes really specifically about capitalism, mm-hmm. about state-sanctioned violence, and because that's, like, really... That's in particular what he was dealing with at the time. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, that like... You know, he's, he wants to critique the cops because he wants to critique the state. He wants to critique the guards and the, and the military because that is what is oppressing him and his community. I mean, there's even a line where he says, Then there was nothing left but the fireman hosing the blood off the streets. So even the fireman yeah, is in exactly. compliance with what's happening. Yeah, and I think that that is a really good way to explain El Salvador in the 80s. And I think in a lot of... And I think... You know, the total government breakdown currently can also be explained. It, it would be explained differently, but I think the government is still broken down. Mm-hmm. Like, not in the exact way that it was in the 80s, but it's definitely a vestige of that time period. Yeah. I do think that he does a good job of, like, going through um, the steps of... One, be, the first thing, it became about hunger and unemployment. And mm-hmm. then they're in... And then, it, and then it starts to escalate. You know, it starts to become about... Well, then they started to actually call them names. Uh, and then they started to shoot at them. And then it was like... Then they were hanged, they were beaten, they were broken, they were swollen, they were asphyxiated. And it escalated. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So can, we, can it really be argued that it was just about unemployment and hunger? Because mm-hmm. at that point, it's become completely something else. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it, the same argument can be applied to like what you were saying earlier, like Nazis or other... Um, reinforcement. Or Border Patrol. Or Border Patrol, exactly. Or Border Patrol. I think that when when do you leave that aspect where it was no long, it no longer is about unemployment and hunger, but it becomes like you're just enforcing uh, a, something very uh, filled with hatred and, and xenophobia. Mm-hmm. Like when is it going to become about that? Um, I think that's where I feel like there's like the, all these supposedly blurred lines, but you've just reinforced it and you're a part of it. I mean, I think that the economic argument is complete and total bullshit because even if it's about... Because with the people who are ICE agents, for I think the private prison and detention guards is kind of a more complicated story because they're oftentimes paid minimum wage. And I think that that's a different situation than a person who 
is like an ICE enforcement officer, they get paid very well Mm -hmm. and oftentimes don't need a college degree. And so, like, especially depending on where in the United States you live, you can be an ICE agent and live a very comfortable life. Mm -hmm. Comfortable in the U.S. And what you're doing is you're stopping, like, very, very impoverished migrants who have felt the the necessity to migrate because they can't survive economically where they're from. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, is that about hunger and unemployment or is that about vacations to Disneyland and a really comfortable retirement in Florida? Mm-hmm. You know, like I... And, and that's where I think too you... I think we've... We want to we want to live the American dream, mm-hmm. and I feel like the American dream has been conflated to be like leaving living these very lavish lifestyles, mm-hmm. and people are so so determined to meet this this very like capitalistic view of what makes someone happy, mm-hmm. and we are willing to even maybe fall go into to roles as a nice agent or anything like that, and and say like oh it's about hunger and. Um, blah 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 but really no it's not it's about fulfilling this like lavish lifestyle that really is not necessary mm-hmm. um especially at this at the at the sake of people's um the sake of imprisoning people or doing something atrocious to somebody yeah know? i mean or it's, it's really people migrants lives at stake like when folks are seeking asylum they're fleeing real violence yeah and that makes it even more disgusting when you think about wow like you you're willing to have this person die because you want to live quote unquote comfortably, mm-hmm. which is actually like in excess of what anybody in their country is. So fucked up, yeah. I mean, I think about that even in the work that I do as a legal assistant. I'm like, <laughs> plot twist. Is it time to critique the nonprofit industrial complex? I mean, also like me, like even as oh, an employee, yeah. I think I think there were I think maybe you posted this, um, or I think it was like a forward for somebody else post something about how if you are working and immigrant rights oh yeah yeah um see organization mm-hmm. and there is like barely any un- undocumented or people who are immigrants who are not with status um who are not like making money or right. excelling within your organization then what what are you doing and i think that's other so- than paying u.s citizen staff exactly. on the backs of migrants mm-hmm. so we're my my salary comes from like supporting su- migrants and trying to help them and free them but I'm also making a profit from that kind of right. uh, process. Right. So I'm still making profit from them being detained in some in some terrible way, if you look at it. But it, but it's true, and I think that's a valid critique. Um, and how can can we amend that and, and and not do that? Well, so that's why I get so infuriated by like white liberals in the nonprofit space, lawyers who talk about the quote-unquote sacrifice that they made to become public interest lawyers. And what they mean by that is that they gave up the six-figure salary that they could have had if they had gone corporate. But it's like, bitch, like, you being a public interest lawyer at one of these prestigious nonprofits is not a bad situation. Like, you are still among the richest people in the world. Mm-hmm. And you, like, if you live... a if you're a public interest lawyer, you're living a comfortable middle-class lifestyle in general. I know that there's some parts of the profession that are like kind of more underpaid, but the vast majority know and like 
why people need to realize like you are getting a whole job and respect and social capital from being this advocate mm-hmm. and you need and like you see it as you sacrificing your own life for these people and you need to recognize that actually like these people give you your livelihood literally mm-hmm. I'm, I'm yeah i completely agree i think i i think i internally struggle with that all the time within this work um I think that's something that anyone working in, in an immigrant rights sort of type of organization should definitely reflect and think about. Aside from like reacting to the system, mm-hmm. how are we also actively trying to to break it apart and change it? Like not just reacting to it. Right. I've said this a lot on the podcast, but I don't want to be an immigration lawyer for the rest of my life. Like I want to work myself out of a job. Mm-hmm. I want to get to a point where we don't need deportation defense lawyers. I'm sure that's a constant theme in this podcast. It is. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I know that I feel like we talked about it, I think, when we were chatting before as well. I know. I feel like I've said it like 10 times at this point, but I just like, keep saying it. Also, like, the people that listen are like, oh my God, I love it when you say that. <laughs> so I say it. No, it's real. Yeah. I don't want to. I, I hope that this organization I'm a part of doesn't exist one day. Right. It's because like, there's so much more to me than my people's trauma. You know, like, I want to. I am creative. I want to to create and I don't want my creations to always just be reactions to oppressive things I Mm -hmm. want to just create from a place of abundance Mm -hmm. a place where you're thriving yes exactly well thank you so much for coming on to the lit review this was another great episode and I hope y'all enjoyed bye bye